Bibles now, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 4. We are finally coming down to the last verses in chapter 4. It's taken us 20 messages to get through this fourth chapter. And there's just a lot of good things that we found here. Uh, Ephesians is just chock full with good doctrinal truths, good practical applications, and a lot that we can learn. I told you before, I'm not really worried how long it takes us to get through this book because as we go, we have the opportunity to look at doctrines from all over the Scripture. So uh, being a slow, a slow go through and a slow process through this book is really not a problem for us. But we notice in this fourth chapter... Uh, Paul developed some very good themes. He began in the first part of the chapter about talk, talking about walking worthy in our Christian lives. And he gives us a reason for doing that. And that's because as we walk with the Savior and walk uh, in, in good company with the Lord, that we also stay in fellowship and unity with one another. You can't be in fellowship with the Lord without being in fellowship with God's people at the same time. So that's a good thing for us to learn. Uh, Paul moved on from that practical statement about our Christian walk to discuss things like uh, one spirit, one Lord, and one God. And in that doctrinal section, we were able to look at the Holy Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From there, we moved on to speaking about the gifts of the Spirit and how that God wants all of us to have a ministry in His church. And in that section, we also learned particularly about the work of the pastor and how it's the pastor's job to build up the body of Christ. And then Paul went on and he brought us back down to a very earthly concept once again because he went back to the theme that he was talking about in chapter 2 where he speaks of the depravity of man. And I don't suppose that Paul could stray very far away from that particular theme because understanding the condition that we're in, what we are before we met Christ, is really very important to understanding how God works in salvation. If we come to the conclusion that man uh, has not been radically altered by the fall of Adam, then we're also going to come to the conclusion that something good has been left in us. There's some reason why of our own selves that we can come to Christ. And so finally we come down to a decision that it's intellectual processes that really bring us to the Lord. But if we come to the conclusion that the fall of man was indeed radical, that the fall left us in a spiritual condition in which we are dead in trespasses and sin, as Paul describes it, then we learn that there's only one way that we can come to God, and that's by supernatural Holy Spirit divine intervention. And when the Holy Spirit comes to us, what he does is he recreates in us spiritual abilities. So I think that's what Paul is teaching. He's teaching the radical depravity of man. And I think it's the whole point of why he comes down to verse number 22 in chapter 4. And he says, put off the old man which is corrupt according his deceitful lust. And goes on in verse number 24 and says, put on the new man which is created in righteousness and true holiness. And if God has caused a new birth in us, then we would certainly have to see that that must have meant that our depravity was indeed radical because it took a new birth to change us from what we were before to what we are now. And the new birth makes us completely different from what we were before. So what we have here in this fourth chapter is some very good doctrinal teaching. It's really the heart and core of the issue of salvation. And we have to make a decision as we study the verses here. Is salvation part man and part God, or is salvation all of God? 
And I think that Paul teaches us that salvation is all of God. And despite what we hear in modern pulpits today, uh, we have to depend upon the Lord and the Lord only for salvation. So what we do have here then is some good doctrinal, practical, solid teaching. And uh, this practical application of, the, of, the, of this book is always backed up by these good doctrines. And you remember that saying that we, that we had as we went through this? Right doctrine produces right practice. If you don't have the right doctrines, then your Christian life won't be right. Well, in the last verses of the chapter, starting with verse number 25, we find that Paul goes back to the practical application once again, and he begins to speak about specific sins. Now, lots of times when we talk about sin, we just use the word sin or sins, and we speak in a very general manner, and we don't talk about specific sins. But what Paul does here, he gets very specific. He mentions four particular sins, lying, anger, stealing, evil communications. He talks about those, and then he stops right in the middle of that, and he says, when you do these things, these kinds of things grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And if you remember, as we talked about that, that seems like a paradoxical statement. Because how is it possible for God, who is not dependent upon man in any way, completely independent of us, and yet God can be grieved by our actions? And we learned that there's only one way that God can be grieved, and that is because he has willingly submitted himself to that emotion. And I don't understand it. I think it's impossible for us to understand that all completely. It's part of the mystery of the Godhead, but that's what Paul says, that it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, now we go on to these last two verses, and Paul once again gets very specific about certain sins. And this last part is one more admonishment before he finishes this chapter to holy and righteous living. Now, we're going to read these last few verses of the chapter, and we're going to start with verse number 30. Verses 31 and 32 will be our text verses. So if you'd stand with me, please. We'll read Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the time we have to come together tonight. Just ask you, Lord, you might bless as we preach the message. Speak to our hearts, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I was preaching from John, the 17th chapter, and I was discussing the use of the word world in that chapter and how that God wants us to stay away from all worldly activities. And as I was talking about that, I I said that I resist giving you a list of things that you should and you should not do. Now, there are many churches that like to give you that list. We've talked about it. And unfortunately, there are many people that become more loyal to the list of the do's and don'ts than they actually do to a heartfelt uh, reason why that they don't want to do things that are against God. And so they just merely recite the do's and don'ts rather than being a response of love of God uh, to the love of God in their hearts. So I resist giving the list, but... Having said that, I don't want to say that we don't ever want to mention specific sins because this is exactly what Paul does here. He names sin and he tells us that we need to confess these kinds of sins. 
Now, many times we go to the Lord in prayer, and as we pray to him, we want to be very general about our sins. Lord, forgive me of my sin. You know, I've wronged or I've done this. And, and we don't get real specific to mention the exact sin that we are guilty of. But there are times when we need to come to the Lord, and we do need to be very specific about what we pray for. Here's the thing that I've done. Lord, I need you to forgive me for this sin, and I want you to help me that I won't do this again. And when you confess specifically to the Lord your sins, that's when it becomes personal to you, and you really understand that this is an affront, this is something wrong against God, and becomes very personal to you. Now, I think that Paul is getting personal as he comes down to these last verses. Verses 31 and 32 are are very personal to us, and this is just like Paul getting right down nose to nose with us, and he's saying to us, this is your problem, and now you need to get rid of it. Now, in those earlier verses, verses 25 through 29, I think Paul speaks in just a little bit different way. There, it seems like he's almost speaking in a group session. He's speaking to the group as a whole. But verses 31 and 32 are more like, the language here is more like Paul sitting down in a chair beside you, throwing his arm around you and saying, here's what we need to do. We need to correct some areas of your life. Now, we need to look at this for a moment because giving up our sins is not just an exercise in correction that helps us in a personal way, but we need to understand that all of our sin is against God, that sin offends the holiness of God, and that's primarily why we don't want to sin against Him. Now, the reason that we do these things, the reason why we try to live for the Lord is because of what God has done for us for Christ's sake. What do we do for Christ's sake? How should we live for Christ's sake? So let's talk a little bit about that tonight. And we're going to have some avenues of outlooks of things that we need to do for Christ's sake. Now, number one on the list here tonight is that we are to dismiss old attitudes. Dismiss old attitudes. I suppose that all of us have character flaws. All of us have our little uh, idio, uh, what do you call them, idiosyncrasies. Is that the right word? Did I say it right? We have those, and we come from uh, different backgrounds. We have uh, different uh, environments that we're from. We run with certain crowds. We come from different areas of the country, some of us. And all of those things affect the way that we interact with one another. But I notice here as Paul writes this that Paul speaks nothing at all about our diversities. He doesn't say anything about background and how that we might be unequal to each other in many different ways. And I don't think that Paul does this because when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is the great equalizer of your life. I mean, it really doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. When a person is Holy Spirit controlled, when God is controlling his life, when he's filled with the Spirit, when he has the mind of Christ, that person will always develop godly characteristics. Now, I think our problem today is that we have become so psychologically aware that we have invented excuses for why people don't do what's right. And if they have the excuse, then it must be all right that they don't do what's right. Well, that's not the way Paul puts it here because, you know, I think that when you become an adult, you become responsible for your actions. And if you act wrongly, then you ought to pay the price of acting wrongly. But here, as he talks about the Christian, the Christian has the power of the Holy Spirit within him, and so he has no excuse in any way, shape, or form not to live for the Lord. You don't have an excuse for bad actions. 
So no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what's happened to you, you have no excuse not to correct the sin in your life. So there's some things that you need to get rid of. Now, if you have this problem, you need to get rid of it because many of us are always encumbered with always, first of all, always too much sourness. He says, let all bitterness be put away from you. Now, the scripture talks a lot about bitterness, and it's always associated with a sour attitude. A sour attitude is nothing that, uh, something that never sees anything but the bleak outlook. I, I would equate it with pessimism. Uh, people are pessimistic when, they are, when they get this sour attitude. And there are people that are so pessimistic that no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter what they suggest, they always look at the downside. They never see positives in anything. They're always looking at negatives. This is something that we experienced many years ago in our church in Kentucky. We, uh, we ran the largest bus ministry in our city. And when we contemplated uh, running these buses, we were picking up a lot of children. And a lot of them were inner city children. And if you live in a big city, you know inner city children can be a problem. And so we discussed this, and there were people who couldn't see any of the positives in that ministry. I mean, they asked questions, well, what kind of an effect will those kind of children have on our building? How are those kids going to interact with our church members' children? Is that going to be an influence on them? How much is it going to cost us to do this? How much work is going to be involved? And they look on the negative side of everything that we do, and they never looked on the positive side, and there is a positive side to it. Because the positive side is the time that you spend with it and the time you you take to reach people means that lives will be changed. The positive side is that I can still go back to Kentucky and I may meet somebody in our city who says to me, you know, I used to ride your bus when I was a kid. I used to come on your bus. Thank you for bringing me to church. That's the positive side of it. But lots of people don't see anything but the negatives. I like one, the way that one author put it. He said, bitterness then describes the kind of life which has become sour. It is not ready to believe good of anybody or anything, but always ready to believe evil. It is always somewhat cynical, takes the glory out of everything, tries to spoil everything. When it has shown something beautiful, it does not praise the 99% that is beautiful but always points to the 1% of defect. And there are a lot of people that are like that. And if you have that kind of characteristic, that's one that needs to be dismissed from your Christian life. Does it make any difference how many hard knocks that you've had in your life and how difficult your life may have been? Maybe things haven't gone very well for you. But folks, that's no excuse for a person to become a sour, thumb-sucking cynic. There's no excuse for it. If you can't have hope because of Jesus Christ, you can't have hope. So that's an attitude that you need to dismiss. Now here's another one. Always too much shouting. And this is what Paul's talking about next. Because a person who is bitter often expresses himself in wrath or in anger. Now we've already talked about anger in a previous message. But one of the things that anger produces is clamor. People that are bitter become angry, and anger results in clamor. Now, what that word means is is shouting. It means to get noisy, to make a great outcry. And how many of you can attest to this, that in your home, when you get angry at your husband or wife, does that ever result in shouting? Okay, there we go. We got some honest people in the congregation tonight. Yeah, sometimes it does. And we're all guilty of it. We, We all get involved in it, and I'm as guilty as anyone about this. 
I, I received a phone call the other day in my office, and the person on the other end was mad at me, and this person was arguing with me, and so we talked for a little while, and as we're talking, the, the uh, argument got a little bit more heated, the voices got a little bit more elevated, and it's not long before we're shouting at one another. We all do it. I don't want to tell on anybody, but I was sitting in the office the other day, and Dalton was on the phone. I, he was on the phone to Comcast or Sonic or somebody, I don't know. But he wasn't very happy, and I could tell because there was a lot of shouting going on. Well, we all do that. We get angry. When my wife and I were first married, uh, we lived in an apartment. And uh, the people that lived below us, I, I don't know, they must have been WWF wrestlers or something. Because they were always calling one another out. They were shouting one another. There's always a fight going on, constant brawling, all the shouting. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit disturbed by that until I began to think about it. And I thought, well, you know, we sometimes we do the same thing. And uh, still today, I'm, I'm careful that when my wife and I get in an argument, I close the windows so the neighbors don't hear us. And we all do that. Well, shouting is an expression of anger. And this is what Paul says, we're not to have uncontrollable anger. And so if we're not to have uncontrollable anger, by necessity, that means it's going to get rid of the uncontrollable shouting. So that's a bad attitude, and we ought to get rid of it. But I want you to understand something. Now, when I'm preaching and I begin to shout, that doesn't mean that I'm angry. Because in preaching, lots of preachers, you know, I'm like a lot of them, uh, you shout because when you don't have anything to say, it all of a sudden it becomes more profound if you say it louder. So we might, I might shout sometimes. But don't have this kind of an attitude that there's too much shouting. Here's another one. Always too much slander. He says, let evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, evil speaking here... The word that's used here is the very same word from which we get blaspheme. And this carries with it the idea that there is a sense of pleasure derived from telling things on people, digging up dirt on people, and being all too happy to tell other people what you've dug up. And so he's speaking about here the delight of being able to tell something. So this really goes beyond just your normal gossip, because here he adds the word malice to it. Now, this is the kind of speaking whereby you, you spread the news and you tell things and you have an intention of inflicting damage on people. You know, there's some people that like to gossip because they think that makes them more interesting. If they've got something new to tell, then that makes them a more interesting person to be around. Well, this is a little bit different from that because this is going beyond normal gossip. And this is a person who speaks with the full intention of hurting someone's reputation. Now, we tend to think of blasphemy as only being against God. I mean, that's the way that we normally use the word. When we blaspheme, we're talking about God. But Paul says it's possible for you to blaspheme other people. And if you think the way that he's thinking, he's thinking that a Christian is a person who's been recreated in the image of God. And so when you blaspheme a Christian, you are also in turn blaspheming the God which they serve. So you need to be careful about that. Now, uh, that's, that's an old attitude that a, that a person needs to get rid of. And if you have this thing that you like to tell things on people, you like to harm people, and you get some kind of delight out of ruining reputations, then you need to check up on your salvation because God's people don't act that way. So these are old attitudes that need to go away. But you remember how Paul always develops these arguments? 
So we studied these other sections and the other sins that he talked about. He had a particular way of developing his argument, and that is he began with the negative. He said, here's the thing that you should not do. And then he went on to the positive side, and he shows us the thing that we should do. So the next part of this is that we are to develop new affections. We're to dismiss the old attitudes, and then we are to develop new affections. Now, it's impossible to start new affections and... uh, Only possible when you've gotten rid of these old attitudes that you have. So you have to get rid of the previous attitudes and then you're ready to set your affection on something else. That's what Paul says in Colossians uh, chapter 3. He says, set your affection on things above. And so when you develop new affections, then you don't have room for the old attitudes. The sourness and the shouting and the slander, those things don't coexist with heavenly affections. So what kind of person should you be? Well, we know we need to get rid of too much sourness and too much shouting and too much slander. But when you change this and you begin to develop new affections, then you can never have enough of these things we're going to talk about now. You can never have enough consideration. Now, the apostle says here, Be ye kind one to another. I want to tell you something that is best for your sanity... And that is that you try to be a person who is a considerate person. You know, when someone says something that we think that's a little bit out of the way, or when somebody says something about somebody else, the first thing that we do is think the worst things possible. And we don't like people... Uh, I mean, we, we have this natural tendency that when, when, when things are said bad about people, we want to think the very worst of that person. And when they have a slip of a tongue or they may say something about us, then we think that their full intention is to harm us in the worst way possible. But Paul says we're not to think like that. We're not to walk around like we have a chip on our shoulder waiting for somebody to knock it off. And many people do. I mean, they don't want anybody to get one up on them, so they're just waiting. I'm going to get you before you get me. And that's the opposite of what Paul says. In another place, in Philippians, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, what the text here is talking about is not passive considerations of kindness. The word that's used here really means an active pursuit of kindness. And so the real picture is here to become useful to others. And the only way that you become useful is to look for acts of kindness. You ever seen that bumper sticker? Usually it's on some liberal's car, but they've got... It's where you're stuck there with the peace signs and everything else. But it has a bumper sticker that says, Practice random acts of kindness. You ever seen that? Somebody's seen it. Sure you have. Okay, you've seen that bumper sticker. Well, for a Christian, we need to have a different bumper sticker. And ours ought to say, Practice deliberate acts of kindness. Because the scripture is teaching us that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we are to look for opportunities to be kind to one another. Now, that's the exact opposite of bitterness. A bitter, sad person looks for faults and he only sees the faults. But a person who has an attitude and affection of kindness and consideration is somebody who deliberately looks for the good of every situation. So we're always looking for something to praise rather than to criticize. A critical spirit is a way of showing that you have a bitter spirit. If you're critical, it shows what's really in your heart. You have this root of bitterness in you. But a person who has a complimentary spirit shows that he has a kind heart. 
So I suppose that people can tell what kind of person you are by the kind of critique that you give. If you're always bitter about things, then that's what your heart's like. And if you're always compassionate and kind towards others, then that's what your heart's like. Well, also be this kind of person. The second one is a kind of person who never has enough compassion. And that's what the word tender-hearted in the verse means. Now, I want you to go back up to verse number 19 just for a second there, and we see the opposite of this. There Paul writes about the Gentiles, and he said they were past feeling. Now, that's a very useful verse, and I've talked about this verse several times, and really that verse explains much of what follows here. But a person, he says, these Gentiles were past feeling. And remember, that's like having a nerve cauterized. In 1 Timothy, Paul said, it's like having your conscience seared with a hot iron. And what he means is, is that people without Christ have lost their sensitivity. He, he describes it as blindness. He talks about, uh, which is actually a word that really means hardness. And that's the way that he describes a person who's past feeling. The Boy Scouts have a term for the lowest-ranking Boy Scout. Does anybody know what it is? What they call the lowest-ranking Boy Scout? A tenderfoot, exactly right. They call him a tenderfoot. Well, you know where that word came from? It actually comes from the Old West mining camps, and it described a person who perhaps came from the East, and he's come out to be a miner, and he's really not hardened. He's not used to outdoor life, and so uh, you know he doesn't know what this is going to be all about. And that's where the word came from. They called him a tenderfoot. Well, this is the same principle that Paul is putting here. A tender-hearted person is somebody who has not become hardened and insensitive to other people. Now, what Paul is trying to tell us here, that we're not to be the kind of people who look at others with problems and we have no feeling for them. Sometimes we get that way. You have a problem, so what? All God's children got problems. And we don't worry about their problems. And so because it's not your problem, it never moves you to tears. That never bothers you. But the character of Christ is one of compassion. In fact, 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah prophesied about the compassion of Christ. He said in Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Bind up the brokenhearted. And that means that Christ would have compassion over those that were broken because of their sins and that sinful condition. He is kind-hearted. He's broken-hearted because they're helpless in the way that they were. And that's what God wants from us. God wants us to be tender-hearted and compassionate people. I think a very good example of caring Christians is one that we find that Paul writes about in, in the book of Second uh, Corinthians. I want you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter 8 for just a moment, if you would. And there Paul is giving a, a commendation to the churches of Macedonia. These churches in Macedonia were, were people that were poor. Uh, the people in those churches didn't have what they needed. They have all kinds of problems themselves. But they weren't the kind of people that were inwardly focused and just looked at their own problems. But despite their problems, they wanted to help others. And so they were willing to go the extra mile to help other churches. So Paul says in chapter 8, if you look at chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8, verse number 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty 
abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they are willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Now, sometimes we look at our problems and that's all that we think about. We think we've got problems And so we become hardened to the problems of other people. And you know that's exactly the opposite of what God says that we need to do. If you have a problem and you see how difficult your problem problem is, the thing that it ought to do is to produce compassion in you. Because you see other people with your kinds of problems and you know how difficult it is for you, that ought to elicit a a feeling of compassion for them. And that is exactly the example of Christ. Remember, as Jesus was nailed to the cross, he's hanging there. And if anybody has a problem, he has a problem, doesn't he? He's there suffering and dying for sin. And yet Jesus was not inwardly focused in his death. He wasn't thinking about the pain and the suffering that he was going through. But he had compassion on the people, even the ones that were there murdering him at that very moment. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He asked for forgiveness, and he had compassion. Now, that leads me to the third thought for tonight. Dismiss the old attitudes, develop new affections, and also display godly attributes. The next phrase that Paul gives us, the next statement, he says, forgiving one another. And so the pursuit of kindness, having an active, tender heart, being compassionate, All of those things lead a Christian to a higher plane of living. Now, you might think, well, that's somewhat presumptuous to say that we can have godly attributes. How can we have godly attributes? That's impossible. How presumptuous of a preacher to say that we can have godly attributes. But this is exactly what the Bible says we can have. Because you remember Peter told us that we are partakers of the divine nature. And so that means we have a part of God living on the inside of us. You see, when you trust Christ and you become a Christian, you're placed into and given access to the divine nature. Now, as you think about the divine nature and the attributes of God, what attribute of God is closest to us? It's forgiveness. That's the very thing that's closest to us. And forgiveness is the only reason that we can even talk about this tonight. Forgiveness is the only reason that we come together here and we talk about the scriptures and we understand it because Christ has forgiven us of all of our sins and we've been made the righteousness of God in him. And so that gives us the sensibility to understand what he means by this. How can you have godly attributes? Only because Christ has forgiven you. So Paul comes down to the end of the chapter and he sums up all the reasons or the reason why all of this can be made. And he says, this is because you have been forgiven. And you were forgiven when you didn't deserve it. You deserved it not at all. And yet God still forgave you. Now let's talk about two things here to end the chapter and we'll end the message with these. The why of forgiveness. The why of forgiveness. Why do you forgive? And the answer is in verse number 32. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And so the principle here is just as simple that you are supposed to do what's been done to you. You've been forgiven, and so you also ought to forgive. Now, we notice here that Paul does not say that God will forgive you when you have forgiven others. 
That's not the order. God has already forgiven you. And because he has, you can forgive others and you're expected to. Now let's turn over to Matthew chapter 18, if you would please. Uh, all of you, I think, are familiar with this parable that Jesus told. It's, a, it's about a man who was unwilling to forgive. Here's a man who owed a great debt and he's unable to pay it. And yet he asked for forgiveness and he was forgiven. And yet there was a person who owed him a debt, a much lesser debt, and he refused to give that, forgive that lesser debt. Now look at verse number 23, uh, because this perfectly illustrates what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 32. Matthew 18, verse 23, Jesus gives the parable. He says, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. For as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, in other words, a much less debt, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into the prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. We have been forgiven much. In fact, our sin debt was so great that it took nothing less than the Son of God to pay that sin debt. It took the death of the Son of God to procure our forgiveness. So none, none of what we experienced could ever match the infinite suffering that was placed upon Christ for our sins. But what did God do? God took the initiative to forgive. And so now God doesn't ask us to forgive. He demands that we forgive. Our transgressions were against a holy and righteous God, and God forgave them, and now we need to forgive those who commit lesser transgressions against us. Now, I want to explain something here that I think is very important for us, and that is we, we've been accused of being unforgiving. And people say that we're unforgiving because sometimes that we have to dismiss from the fellowship of our church those who sin and injure the body. Someone came to me the other day and told me, he said, you don't have any right to exclude anybody from the church because we're supposed to be loving and forgiving. But I want to tell you something. That has nothing at all to do with forgiveness. When a person sins against the church, we've already forgiven them before they even ask. We already forgive that person. So the issue is not forgiveness. The issue is the purity of the church. And when we allow a person to say, stay in the church who refuses to confess, to repent, confess of their sins, and to turn from that sin, then we allow that person to stay in the church, then we have actually committed an aggression against God. 
And God doesn't tell us to, to, to deal with it. He demands that we deal with that. Now, I encourage anyone who wants to know about church discipline to read in the Bible 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't have time to go into all that tonight, but it's very straightforward about what God expects the church to do in matters of discipline. But the last verse of chapter 5, let me read that one. Paul says, Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So this is not an issue of forgiveness. We follow the command to forgive, but we also follow the command to put offenders out of the church for the purity of of our church. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not sinners. And somebody accused accused us of that the other day. You know, well, you must think that you're not sinners. You're all sinners. Everybody over that church is a sinner. Of course, we're all sinners. We know that. We're all sinners. But as members of the same church, when we sin against God, we confess our sins. We repent of our sins. We get right with God and we forsake our sin. And when a person refuses to do that and they say, oh, well, I'm sorry that I sinned, but they go right back to the old sin and they keep on committing it. Well, that's not what God says. We're not supposed to keep that kind of person in a church. We forgive them, but we might have to put them out of the church because they don't forsake their sin. So why do we forgive? Because God has forgiven us. But I want you to also notice this last part, and that is the way of forgiveness. Now, this is absolutely vital. We cannot miss this. The way of forgiveness. And the way of forgiveness is Jesus Christ. How is that done? Well, he says, even as God for Christ's sake. Now, here's the error of generic Christianity and the error of most of the world. Because most people think, well, the reason that God forgives is because of love. The basis of God's forgiveness is love. So I don't need to worry about going to hell. I don't have to worry about dying and going to hell because God is a God of love. And since God loves me, God will not send me to hell. Well, don't bank on that one because the basis of God's forgiveness is not love. The basis of God's forgiveness is Christ. The love of God is in Christ. And God's love does not exist apart from Christ. Now, think about it. If God forgave on the basis of love only as an external thing, then Jesus never would have had to come to die. God could just say, well, I love you, and so I'm going to forgive you. But God doesn't forgive on the basis of love. He forgives on the basis of Christ. And so the mercy, the love, the compassion, the grace of God all comes through Jesus Christ. And so if you ever wonder why is it that a Muslim won't go to heaven and Buddhists don't go to heaven, and why do the Hindus not go to heaven, and yes, even the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, why aren't they going to heaven? Well, it's because they don't have the love in Christ. Christ is the only thing that's going to save us from a burning hell. And so you can't have love for God outside of who Jesus Christ is. Now, many times we read 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I think you're familiar with the scripture. That's where uh, Paul says that we are new creatures created in Christ Jesus. But what we fail to do is to read the rest of the argument after he says that. Let me read it to you. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 18 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, 
reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the way of forgiveness is Christ. Now let me ask you a question. This is the last And then we'll make the last statement on the listening sheet tonight. The question is, what is the evidence of forgiveness? What's the evidence of forgiveness? And the answer to the question is, my heart is broken. Paul brings us down to the last verse of chapter 4. And what he gives us here is a means of assurance of salvation. How can I know that I am saved? How can I know that I've been forgiven? I have assurance... Because I display godly attributes. I have the attributes of God. My heart has changed. Christ was compassionate. He was broken for us. And now my heart has been changed. I've dismissed my old attitudes. I've developed new affections. And now I display the godly attribute of a broken heart. And if you don't feel that way, if you don't sense that, then you can't have the full assurance that you could otherwise have as a Christian. Now, why am I concerned about, about forgiveness and righteous living? Why should I do this? For Christ's sake. Because that's why God did it for you. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and what we learned from it tonight. I ask you.